0: Ephesians chapter 4. Open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll continue in our part 2 of this little study called Christ design for a healthy church. Christ design for a healthy church. Let me read the verses 11 through 13, which will occupy our attention today. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This section raises an important question that we've been dealing with for a few weeks here, and that is, how important is the church and how important are church leaders in the life of a Christian? It's a simple question, and everyone has an answer to it, whether you articulate it or not. How important is the church to your growth? How important are church leaders to your growth? People answer this very much on a spectrum. First, there's what we call uh, clericism. And clericism is a big word that sees the church organized by a very few, run by professionals, professional leaders. And in this view, the work of the ministry is primarily done by those who are paid to do it. But on the other side, on the other end of the spectrum, there's anti-clericism. Anti-clericism is most common in American evangelicalism, I believe where subjectivism, individualism leads people to conclude that their faith is personal and church leadership is optional. And if there is church leadership, those men should be held in suspicion. This happens when there's little or no respect for vocational pastors in the church. The idea is that trained vocational pastors and leaders and counselors know little more than the laity and are in the ministry usually for unholy reasons motivations. Both of these extremes are unbiblical and both of these views are wrong. But here in the Midwest, we probably have all seen the edges of these wrong views. For example, we've seen egomaniac pastors who dominate churchgoers with authoritarian control with extreme self in mind all the way to the other side where there's extreme brethren churches where this organization refuses to acknowledge that anyone can be a recognized spiritual leader in a church and everything in between. Both those extremes come from unbiblical thinking. They come from not understanding what Paul, what Jesus, what Peter, what John said about the church. And I would also say most of those bad Reads on the church are probably rooted in bad experiences that people had in the church. These wrong views from the, of the church lead to some tragic consequences. First, they can lead to inactivity. For example, if you believe in clericism, you can say, well, th- th- that's for the pastors. That's for the elders. I- I'm just here to enjoy the show. On the other side, you could strongly believe in anti-clericism and say, I don't need the church. In fact, I'm going to withdraw I'm not even going to go to church. And at the heart of both of these is this wrong view of the ministry, which can be called and has been called by many professionalism. In fact, John Piper wrote a book. Years ago, brothers, we are not professionals. In which he was fighting this idea that, that pastors are professionals. Now, I appreciate Piper's book. It's been influential in my thinking, in my life. I'm so thankful that he he basically is saying we're not professionals who need to who need to garner and gather uh, respect in a way that some business professional does, and and uh, we're we're to be servants and we're to be uh, those who who cast our lives before and on the uh, and because of on behalf of our people. I appreciate that. I agree with him. Professionalism really is the idea that those who are paid, usually pastors, do the work of the ministry for everybody else and to everybody else. Latest studies reveal, this is shocking, almost 50%, half, almost 50% of ministers do not last five years in the ministry when they start. And only 10% of those who begin as pastors retire as pastors. 10%. I think much of the, in the sad statistics are due to the same wrong thinking about ministry that not only exists in the pews, but exists for some in the pulpits. And again, it's this idea of professionalization of the ministry. Now, let me be quick to say there are certain nuances of the ministry that require a certain level of professionalism. And by this, I mean that ministers should act like professionals but not be treated as as celebrities. One of the marks of a profession is being educated and experienced in your job. Ask any medical doctor about their education and their training. Most physicians are required to complete continuing education as they go along, every few years as an ongoing discipline. And here's a question. If we think it's proper for a physician to be trained and demonstrate a level of expertise and excellence as they care for our bodies, shouldn't we assign the same propriety to pastors who care for the health of our eternal souls? So yes, there is a kind of professionalism that should be present In pastors, but this professionalism should not lead to exceptionalism or exclusivism where they're alone doing the work of the ministry because they're the only ones who can. The main job of the pastor is to teach and shepherd the laity in the church to be faithful ministers themselves, and that's Paul's point in the passage before us. This discourse, this paragraph, on ecclesiology and polity, which are two big words for the doctrine of the church and how the church is organized, comes in Paul's discussion of Christ being a giver of gifts. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And in verse 10, we see the ultimate aim of Christ giving gifts to people, and that is to fill all things. And the all things there, the specific reference to that is the church, to have fullness in the church, to have worship in the church, to be the main reason for the church to be the main attraction in the church. We saw in the previous verses that just as a king wins a battle, gets the spoils of war and can distribute those to his countrymen. Christ won the spiritual battle, has gifts, and he distributes gifts as a victorious victorious Savior and Lord over sin, Satan, and self and gives gifts to men amazingly. We began looking at that in the last few weeks. He wants to fill all things, be the object of our focus and our attention in verse 10. So we began looking at his gifting, which is interesting. He gives to each one gifts, but then in verse 11, he changes to men who are gifted in order to help the gifted ministers in the church, which are all of us, to be faithful. We began looking at this last week, three results of Christ's distribution of the gifts. And we got through point one, and we'll get through the last two today. Three results of Christ's distribution of spiritual gifts. The first is gifted men. That's the first result. And we looked at this grammatically. It's very interesting. You know what an article is. We did some grammar work last time. A definite article is, a, is a the rather than a, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's a very specific marker. And when there's a definite article in front of a, a, a noun, it means, look at this. This is important. And the last of this list, there's a definite article and then two nouns. And let me explain that because it, it puts those two offices and functions together. So take the word as out because it's not in the original. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors, teachers, pastor teachers. Remember, God prophesied through David which Paul references in verses 8 to 10, that Christ would victoriously share gifts with men. Each one would receive a gift in verse 7. But here, these are each, these are men that God gifts for unique functions in the church. And he gives a list. And we studied this with intensity last time, so I won't belabor it. Uh, remember, 1 Corinthians 12.8, there's an order to this list. 1 Corinthians 12.28, God appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, Third, teachers, and then he says the rest of the gifts. So the apostles and prophets, we learn in chapter 2, verse 20, and in chapter 3, that these were the foundational starting blocks of the church. Why? Because they received revelation and they prophesied revelation, which would ultimately become the New Testament. Then he talks about evangelists. These are, the best way to understand that is modern-day missionaries, those who would take the gospel to places that hadn't been taken before. And then he says, and some pastor teachers, pastors and teachers. We looked at the fact that these are men given to the local church. It's a a perpetual office in the church until he returns that are shepherds who care for the souls of people in the church primarily through teaching. And we'll look specifically at that in just a moment. Preaching, teaching, articulating doctrine, talking about what the Bible says Explaining what the Bible means and showing how the Bible applies. Those are gifted men that God gave to establish the foundation and the beginning and the ongoing ministry on and with the church. Now we turn to a second result of Christ's distribution of the gifts, and it involves you. (laughs) Equipped. Ministers. I know what you're thinking when you see the word ministers. I grew up and the word minister was our pastor. That's not what I mean, and that's not what Paul means here. Ministers is equivalent to the word saints. Verse 12, equipping of the saints. That's you. That's everyone who's a believer. That's all Christians. Equipped ministers, but he expects you not just to be a saint who's holy before the Lord, who, who's been saved by the Lord, but someone who's doing ministry. That's why we're using the word ministers, equipped ministers. Verse 12, he gave this list followed by pastor-teachers, why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let's begin at the end of verse 12 and work backwards. I think it's important. The goal he has in mind here is a coordinated effort with all the saints doing the work of service. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. Now, regrettably, there has always been a very vocal minority of people who believe that their Christian experience can operate outside the local church, without involvement in the local church, without commitment to the local church, independent of the local church folks this concept would have never made any sense to paul or to jesus himself there is no such concept and we'll see this when we get to ephesians 5 there's no such concept of saying i love the lord but i hate his wife hate his bride he parallels Jesus and the church and a husband and wife. It would have been farcical to say to Paul, you know what? I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I follow Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with, with the church, his bride, the one he died for, the one he loves, the one, the, the group he said he would build. There's just, that should be a, that should be an incongruent idea in anyone's mind who's read their Bible, but we still have some people who believe that they can exist independent of the church. They can grow independent of the church. They can worship independent of the church. They can serve outside the church. Think of this. We learned that each one is given a gift. You are uniquely and especially gifted And made in a special way to build up the body of Christ. You can't build up the body of Christ so much in Ukraine, China, and the the underground church. You, You can't do much there. You can give, you can give missionaries, but building up the body of Christ has baked into that definition the people that you go to church with, it's your local church. Those are the people you build into, those are the people you build up, those are the people who build into into you. It's a local church. So the question then is, how do we accomplish building up the body of Christ? Building up means to make it stable, to make it finished, to make it complete. How do we build into this body of Christ? Well, he tells us in the first part of the verse, by being equipped, which means by being prepared the equipping of the saints for this work of service. The gifted men of verse 11 are gifted for the spe- specific goal of equipping the saints for the work of service. Now, this word equipping is a really interesting and important word in Paul's vocabulary. It means to fit properly, to restore to an original condition. Very interestingly, this word was used in Paul's day as a medical term for the setting of a bone when it was broken. You have a broken arm and they would set the bone. It was fixing something that was broken. We are called to come to spiritual leaders in our local church and be equipped, corrected, set in line, set in order, restored to a proper theological condition. Now, for what? For what? This was a surprise to me, actually, when I was looking at this. Equipped for the work of service. Now, usually the word used, there are four or five words that we translate servant or service in the, in the Greek New Testament. This, is an, this one took me unexpectedly. Usually it's the word doulos. Maybe you've heard of the word doulos. It's the word for slave. It's the word for servant. This is not the work of doulos. This is actually the word, same word that we translate for deacon, the word for diaconate. Now, that's a little confusing unless you really dig down into it, because we usually say, oh, deacons, it's an office in the church. And is this calling us to be deacons? No, 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 no. It's actually that's the reverse polarity of what Paul is saying. To deek, as we say, to deaconate, to, to, to serve, means that you know how to minister to people's lives and needs. In fact, the office of deacon is just someone who has an official office of service in the church. But all of us are called to be servants, those who serve. Yes, there are to be official, recognized deacons in the church, that's what... Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, but every believer is to be trained and ready to serve, get this, in the ways God has gifted you and in the ways that we've been equipped in his local church. Said another way, the church cares for its own through the service of each person one to the other you are your brother's keeper in the church. Now let's go back for a moment and see how we're equipped to do this. How do we learn to do this for this work of service? It is a work, by the way. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes deliberation. It's a work of service. How do we learn to do this? Where do we learn to do this? Well, let me give you at least two ways that are always on the to-do list for pastors and elders who are equipping the body to serve the Lord faithfully by serving each other in the work of service. Two primary ways on the to-do list. The first is, is the teaching ministry. There's teaching the meaning and application of God's Word. That's why Paul calls these men pastor-teachers at the end of verse 11. God's word is the sustenance of every healthy soul. Is that, can I say that again? God's word is the sustenance of every healthy soul. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, putting aside all malice, this is verses 1 to 3 you can look at, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like. Like newborn babies, long, crave, desire, pursue the pure milk of the what? Word, the word. So that by it, the pure milk of the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. This whole passage is going to be about maturity. We grow in respect to salvation from the word. We're to have a longing for that word like a like a baby does for milk. Boy, I remember when our, our boys were younger and if, if they wanted to eat, there was, there was no consoling. <laughs> that wasn't the time to play with the ball. That wasn't the time to look and, and say goo-goo. They, it, they wanted to eat and that was it. Paul understood. Paul describes this situation that when a baby wants milk, it wants nothing else it cannot be sustained it cannot be satisfied with anything else he uses that illustration that's universally known to everyone he says we're to be like these babies who crave the pure milk of the word it feeds us it sustains us second peter 1 verses 2 and 3, going backwards a little bit, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Remember that, we'll come back to that in a moment. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, that's full sufficiency, everything pertaining to life, that's living, godliness, that's pleasing the Lord, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, where is the only reliable place for the true knowledge of God. It's the Word. It's the Bible. Listen, full disclosure, that's why we put such a premium on teaching and preaching at MRBC. As I stand here, I look out the window and I see cars passing by. And for those who don't understand this concept, if you were to sit them down and say, one of the... One of the highlights of my week is to sit for 45 minutes to an hour and have the Bible explained to me. Then to do it in Sunday school. Then to do it for a a couple times during the week. Then to do it on my own. That they wouldn't have a category for you. Yet that's what we, we long, we crave, the milk of the Word. Why? Because that's the way we grow in respect to salvation. Where do you find the knowledge of Him in the Bible? So part of the pastor teaching function, part of the equipping function is to teach the the Bible, is to teach what the Bible says. That's why we're so heavy into teaching in our church, Sunday mornings and in the children's ministry on Wednesday nights. It's important that we teach what the Bible says, all the Bible says, how the Bible applies because that's God's word to us and for us. So part of equipping is teaching people what the Bible says, but that's that's only getting halfway there, And, and that's because there's another application of teaching the Word that I think really is equipping saints for the work of service, and it's how you can minister to each other probably the most profound way, at least, and that is we're also called not only to equip you by teaching the Bible, but equip you to understand how to live through trials and difficulties. The older I get and the longer I'm in ministry, I, I, I realize that one of the primary tasks of the pastor, teacher, elder, overseer, counselor in our, in our world, in, in, our, in, in our church, the, one of the primary things we do is teach people to have a theology and a plan for difficulty, for, for suffering. You don't really have to teach someone how to enjoy the blessings of God, do you? That comes pretty naturally. But part of equipping is teaching people, watch this, please don't misunderstand, teaching people how to involve God in their difficulties and their difficulties in God, and also how to tell others, how to shepherd others to do the same. It's not just equipping you to handle difficulties well, it's equipping you to do the work of service in doing that with each other. God uses trials to test our faith and produce endurance. James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren. Such an interesting passage. Be joyful, my brethren. Not if. I wish you said if. When you encounter various trials, they're guaranteed. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, the ability to continue on in life life and godliness, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's sufficiency. If you're equipped, if you're equipped with the word to know how to deal with difficulty and you lack nothing, that's equipped. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without holding back, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, He must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts. This is interesting. It's like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's the exact illustration Paul will use in our next passage, in our next study for doctrinal instability. For let let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You put all that together. I think pastor teachers are called to teach the standard and the theology, the regulations and the joys and the rewards in God's word, the revelation of God himself, and to teach how to navigate through the difficulties of this world until we get to heaven in a way that that theology matters. And then not only to teach the body that, but the point is then you do the work of service by holding each other accountable and teaching each other that. This means combining biblical teaching with soul care through difficulties. I think it's interesting, very interesting. You might want to look here in Psalm one hundred nineteen, Psalm one hundred nineteen, beginning in verse sixty five. It's the tenth uh, stanza of that psalm. That the psalmist weaves together and combines God's word, teaching God's word, loving God's word, and navigating through difficulties, and how that really is a part of the equipping. Process that God uses to make us complete in Him. Psalm sixty-five. Excuse me. Psalm one, nineteen, verse sixty-five. You have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Listen. To this emphasis on on Scripture. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Verse sixty-seven. Before I was afflicted. Before I had difficulty. Before I had these trials in my life. Before that. I went astray. I I wandered off course. But now I keep your word. How? Because he had seen God's sustenance, God's help in the word, and he was trained by the affliction to obey the word even deeper. He keeps going. You are good and you do good. Verse 68, teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me with all my heart. I will observe your precepts. Oh, if that were our, if that were our passion. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. And then, then verse 71, which you kind of scratch your head and you say, is that in my Bible? And it is. It is good for me, the psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That I had a a trial, trials, that I experienced difficulty. Why? That I may learn your statutes. Do you see how the psalmist weaves together shepherding through life means learning the word, to learn how to use the word in difficult times so that we can learn to obey the word better. And it's this building maturity that happens as we interact with trials and the word and the word in our trials the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. What is he saying? The result of learning God's word from gifted teachers in the church and learning how to navigate life's difficulties from these pastors and teachers and elders and people who love your soul that generates your ability to help other believers in the church to live faithful and satisfying lives in Christ, God intends not for you just to learn how to live before Him, not just to learn what, what He's like and what He does. He intends for you to know that and do the work of service in teaching that to one another and caring about one another's souls, so that you can speak into life because you've been equipped to do that. It's not just for the pastors and teachers to say, here's life and how to live it. Is for every saint to know their gifts, to understand God's word, to understand how God uses the difficulties of life. Put that in your own words, in your own experience and love each other and do the work of service by ministering to one another, to the building up, the maturity, the health of the body. You're involved. You're called to be involved. We need every one of you. MacArthur rightly says, attendance is a poor substitute for participation in ministry. It's not just coming and sitting and leaving. It's coming and engaging and being engaged. Full disclosure, unashamed promotion, again, of care groups. That's a place that we have organized a way for you to do this, to be involved with this. And I know what some people say, oh, I don't feel like going. I don't know how to tell you this, but very few, few people feel like going on Sunday nights, Feeling like going and knowing your soul needs it is two different things, though. question I have for you is, do you come to church to be equipped? To be equipped to do the work of serving others. You're not just the dead sea that everything pours into and nothing goes out of and it dies. You should be a living extension of the tributaries of God's truth and God's grace to anyone and everyone around you. You are, <laughs> you are God's gifts to our church. You're equipped to serve, to counsel, to care. And if you say, well, I just don't know enough, you know enough to care and to pray and to learn more. Don't back off. The third result of Christ's distribution of spiritual gifts gifted men, equipped ministers, and third, and this is just crazy, crazy uh, the way Paul describes this spiritually, crazy, wonderful. Measured maturity, measured maturity, because what he's going to command us to do is impossible. He's going to tell you, are you ready for this? I want you to be and act like Jesus. How's that worked out for everybody? And yet that's the standard. And he doesn't say, this is impossible, so don't try. He says, this is your goal. Let's all do it together. Measured maturity. Verse 13. Until, stop right there. Until. Now this could mean, well, until, you know, if we're going to, be mature, uh, we, don't, we don't stop trying to equip each other and equip the saints and, and try to uh, build up the body of Christ um, until Jesus comes and then it'll happen. No, no. The idea is that you're, you're realistically pursuing in individual benchmarks that can be checked. You are actually becoming like Christ in this until we all attain, and then he gives a list, Until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure it is of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. These verses speak to the objectives of Christian growth. And these objectives are both individual and they're corporate. Our individual and corporate objectives are actually interrelated. Said another way, Paul's notion is you cannot grow without others in the body. And others in the body cannot grow without you to an appropriate measure of maturity. Paul points directly to the goal of building up the body of Christ with specific applications for attaining this goal. And he gives us that time stamp of until. So he he wants us to be evaluating all the time, is this happening? Are we doing this? The simple word informs us that we should be with each other looking to ourselves and asking, is this happening? Are we... Are we growing? Now what follows is perhaps the most detailed outline of Christian maturity in the New Testament. It's just wonderfully loaded. We could actually spend a week or more on each one of these phrases. First is the concept or the the theme of the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Until we attain to the unity of the faith. Now, I think that's something that can be attained this side of heaven if you understand what the unity of the faith is. He's been talking about unity since verse 1. He'll conclude that section in verse 16. Our relational goal is a doctrinal goal. Unity, that's our relationship of faith, that's our doctrine. We are to study and be taught to come to the same unifying doctrinal theological conclusions about the doctrinal pillars that Paul outlined in verses 4 to 5. Agree on what ecclesiology is, one body, the body of Christ. Agree on what the Spirit does and who He is in our lives, the Holy Spirit. One hope, that's our focus on heaven. We're going to the same place we should learn how to get there together. One Lord, He's the one waiting for us at the end. One faith, that's not just faith in the gospel, that's the corpus of faith of everything we believe that's, that comprises our faith, what we have faith in, what we believe. It's our doctrine. One baptism, that's our identification with Christ, that we belong to Him, and He is our Lord, and then one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Trinity is represented there, the Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father. And just like in verse 5, faith is described not so much as Faith in the gospel, as wonderful as that is, but he's describing a confessed body of Christian doctrine. I think that's what he's saying right here. The unity of the faith. Again, that's impossible without teaching in the church and organizing our thoughts around confessional statements and doctrinal statements and saying, this is what we believe the Bible says, and this is what we believe the Bible doesn't say. Doctrine matters Let me say it as clearly as I think Paul would. Anyone who claims to know Christ and is not intimately and deeply involved in pursuing doctrine in a local church is in sin. You're missing the mark. That's what sin means. Look at the second in this list. Until we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of the Son of God, of God we are to be equipped to help one another increase in our knowledge of the son of God it's so simple and yet so profound this was paul's prayer request in heart in chapter 1 verse 17 he prays that the that the god of the lord, our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation how in the knowledge of him now, full disclosure, we're not gonna take a deep dive into this because that's exactly what Paul does in verses 17 to 24. Is describes what it means to have come to a knowledge of Christ rather than a walking according to the world. But it does put Christology at the tip of the spear of our growth as believers. Growth as a believer always involves a deeper understanding, a greater understanding of the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Christology, knowing who Christ is, <clears throat> knowing what He did, knowing what He's doing. He is the focus. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life. And we always expect at what comes after that is eternal life, forever living, it's living forever. But that's not what He says. He defines eternal life this way, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when Paul prays that they would come to a greater knowledge of the Son of God, when he says that our equipping leads us to a greater knowledge of the Son of God, the question is do you know Christ better today than last week? Than last month and last year. Are you growing in your knowledge of Him? Remember what we said in our communion exercise? Jesus says, Do this to remember me because He knew that without reminders, we would let our Christianity slip into anything and everything except a focus on Him. If we don't remember Christ and the knowledge of the Son of God, we, we can very easily. Default our Christianity into behavior modification, doing better, trying harder, rather than knowing Christ. Doesn't this just make you automatically think of Philippians 3, 7 and following? Whatever things were gained in me, Paul says, those things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing Value of knowing Jesus my Lord. Implication of the resurrection is unmistakable. You don't know someone, have a relationship with someone who's dead. He wants to know Christ. May be found in him. Then he waves the doctrine there with the justification by faith alone, Christ alone. Righteousness not of my own, brought from the law, righteousness only in Christ, that I may know Him. You know, I think it's probably a universal struggle that when we we have difficulty in our faith, that probably what we've done is shift our focus from our faith in Christ Himself to our faith in the things of Christ. We don't have faith in faith, we have faith in Christ. We think of Him, we, we meditate on Him. We imagine Him as presented in the Gospels. He is the focus of our faith. And the point here is we're equipping, <laughs> you're equipped in the church to help others know Christ. The point is you should be equipped to help others do the work of service, and part of that is knowing the one you're serving, a person of the Lord Jesus. Third, Paul says, to it, then this list of maturity. To a mature man, we're going to say a lot more about this as we advance in chapter four. To a mature man, a complete man, he expects believers to grow into maturity. Living things grow. Christians grow. You don't walk the aisle, pray the prayer, sign the card, you're done with Christ, you've checked the box, and now you can go live how you want to. No, we are constantly growing in and with and toward Christ to be mature. Let me go back to what Peter said. We read this earlier. Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and all slander, 1 Peter 2.2 Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that you by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Are you growing in respect to salvation or is it just something you check into and out of and think about on Sundays and put it on the shelf? And again, let me reemphasize, the point Paul is making here is equipping. We are equipped enough to become mature enough to help each other grow in respect to salvation. And we, the way we do that is knowing Christ better. You know, it might be a good exercise if you sense that your, your life is, your, your passion for Christ has waned. Let me just encourage you, don't you can keep doing whatever you're doing in your Bible study, and your quiet times. Why not add a paragraph a day of the Gospels? just a paragraph or a chapter. Just read a little. Don't let your mind wander far from Christ. Why does he say that? Because the fourth in this list of maturity is to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is nothing short of amazing impossible and possibly presented. I know that sounds like a a contradiction, but that's exactly what he's saying. Our growth is measured by nothing less than the fullness of Christ's stature, his character, his likeness, his character, his holiness is our measuring rod. We grow into that stature. He's the standard. He is to be imitated and emulated. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, be imitators of me, And everybody starts rolling their eyes until he says, as I also am an imitator of of Christ. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked, live in the same way that Jesus lived. And then one of my favorite, literally my favorite verses, it just beckons to me over the course of my life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are, listen to this, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What's he saying there? We're going into the image of Christ and we see that image, it only makes us want to grow more from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory until we are ultimately finally glorified and we're like him without sin in heaven. This will be Paul's focus beginning in verse 13 and we're gonna spend a good deal of time there, several weeks on this. For now, the question is how has God gifted you and are you being equipped to use those gifts to help others around you mature into stronger believers? Do you own that responsibility? Can you answer the question of how God has gifted you? Can you answer the question, are you using those specific giftings for the benefit of the people you know in the church? Are you being faithful to be equipped to use your gifts in our local body? If you don't know what to do, what do you like to do? Try that. What do you like to do in ministry? What are you good at? What are you fruitful at? Ask people, what am I fruitful at? If they say, I don't know, I haven't seen anything, then try some things. How do others see you benefiting the church? The need and precedent for spiritual leadership is well documented in the Bible but it's to equip you to think like God scripturally so they're equipped to help and serve one another. Not like the last verse in the book of Judges. So telling. In those days, there was no king. There was no spiritual leadership. And because of that, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Without biblical leadership, not Rick or the elders or pastors, without without biblical leadership and instruction, You will default, we will all default into doing what's right intuitively in our own eyes. And we come to God's word every week to be corrected and equipped to think rightly. So if we're careful to listen to Paul in the section of Ephesians and be vigilant to apply what he's teaching us about the church, I think we will have no lack of genuine spiritual leadership and no absence of genuine care for each other's souls in our local body. Rick, are you getting in our kitchen? No, Paul is. (laughs) He is putting his apostolic finger in our chest and tapping us and saying, are you faithful to do the work of service? And if you're not, is it because you're disobedient or ill-equipped? And if it's ill-equipped, let's work on that. We are to be a church full of ministers, not members. Will you bear that wonderful and joyful burden with each other and for each other? That's what it means to be equipped. That's our goal, to build up the body of Christ. Father, thank you for your instruction Forgive us where we've been deficient. Forgive us where we've been disobedient and negligent. And thank you for the opportunity to repent, to change, to be faithful even today, to do the work of service to your beloved body until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of your Son to be mature, And that maturity is becoming like the character and holiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Convict us, instruct us, help us, enable us. In Jesus' name, amen.